Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today is Earth Day and day one of our spring membership campaign. When you donate to WABE today, Trees Atlanta will plant a tree in return for every donation we receive. Please go to wabe.org or call 678-553-9090. In February, the Freedom Park Conservancy, Trees Atlanta, and the National Center for Civil and Human Rights together created a living memorial to the late congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis to honor his legacy Hundreds of blooming trees, shrubs, and flowers have been planted in Freedom Park. Later this hour, we'll hear about the initiative from Dr. Kalinda Lee, head of programs at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and the co-executive director of Trees Atlanta, Greg Levine. First... Theatrical Outfit is presenting 100 Words for Snow, a play they think most appropriate as we emerge from a year of loneliness and isolation. Matt Torney is the Artistic Director of Theatrical Outfit, and he is directing this one-actor show. She joins us along with Matt Kristen Jeter, Welcome to City Lights. Hello. Thank you so much for having us, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. This play was a smash hit in the UK when it was first produced in London. How do you think audiences will receive it here in the States and especially here in the South? Well, I think it's going to be a smash hit here as well, um, because the thing that makes the story really good is that it's about fundamental human things. It's it's about uh, a 15 year old girl whose father has recently passed away and she's struggling to overcome her grief. But the way that she does it is by stealing her dad's ashes and taking them on an extraordinary adventure. Because you see, her father wanted to be a polar explorer, but never managed to leave suburban London. So she takes his ashes to the North Pole. <laughs> 
So this 15-year-old girl steals her mom's credit card, steals her dad's ashes, and goes on this extraordinary adventure. Now, in this are a couple of just absolutely extraordinary and fundamental things for playing the theatre. First of all, it's about something very real, which I think is universal and will resonate in England, America, and the South, which is the question of how do we get through grief? How do we overcome loss? How do we change? How do we grow? But also... It's just an amazing story full of adventure and imagination and humor and change. And then when you take all of these elements and you put it into an extraordinary performance by a single actor playing all the characters and conjuring all the different locations and environments, I think that's a recipe for pretty amazing theater. Sounds it. Would you talk about the play's title? Sure. So what I found is that there was a myth that the Inuit people who live in Greenland and frequent the North Pole, there's this myth that they have a hundred words for snow, but it's, it's not true at all. And so it's Rory going through and finding, finding the truth of what, what happened through these explorers and the truth of the nature at the same time. So it's this myth versus fact kind of thing that plays out through the show. And it's something that you can only find through exploration. Like as an explorer, you can only find what's true through going through the process. And Rory too could only find what's true about herself, what's true about the things that her father believed in through going through the journey. Kristen, how would you describe the character of Rory? She marches to the beat of her own drum. She leads with her intellect first as a way to guide her through her emotions. And I just love her so much. And I I resonated with her a lot as someone who is always searching for more, who doesn't quite fit in with what's going on around her and has this hunger to stamp out complacency. (laughs) Would you say that you're identifying with the fact that she's not certain of where she fits in is because of your love for acting? No, I think growing up in Smyrna and just having different interests for um, art and things like that, like Rory has an interest for science and exploration in a way that most girls don't. I think she her fundamental struggle is like what kind of girl she's going to be. She talks in the show about calling herself Rory, giving herself that nickname or choosing that nickname instead of her full given first name, which is Aurora. So that balance between what is it to be a girl turning into a woman and what do you have to play into versus what, what can you do to be true to yourself? Have you ever performed in a one woman show before? I have not, not like this. I come from a musical theater background. And so in, I think it was 2016, I rented a space at Seven Stages and I did this one woman show for myself, kind of explaining where I had been since leaving home all that time and my journey as an actor, but it also had music throughout it. So this was a different bear for it to be all 41 pages of text with no easy songs to remember in between. (laughs) Oh, wow. In a 2018 London theater review I read, Damien Russell was the critic. The production managed to recreate what we see so often in life, the funny side to a bad event. 
How does a hundred words for snow manage to find humor in such a sorrowful time for Rory? Well, that's that's because Rory's point of view on the world is a very funny one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, like, I think humor and point of view go hand in hand. It, R- Rory struggles with feeling sorry for herself because she knows that w- that's not what her dad would have wanted for her. She wants to make sense of things and she wants to move through this time of grief into a time of growth. And along the way, she just has such extraordinary experiences and encounters such strange and bizarre characters and circumstances uh, that for all of the profound questions at the heart of the play, there's also a healthy dose of the ridiculous as well. Um, and this exact thing is what drew me to the play as an artistic director. Because uh, uh, when we were sitting down trying to figure out how we were going to kind of reinvent our programming to respond to the, the pandemic, we knew we wanted to do a play that tackled something real, that got us teeth into something, that it wasn't just pure escapism. But we also didn't want to do a play that was just going to kind of probe uncomfortable wounds and really push people and, and, and disturb them in a way that might be challenging in a spring after everything that everyone had gone through. So a play that combines the sublime and the ridiculous. <laughs> the poetic and the profane felt like something where we could all come together and experience this story that would help us process grief and understand and also bring us on an amazing journey from suburban London to the Arctic wastes of the far north of the world and all the kind of strange people that Rory meets along the way. Personally, and maybe this is my Irish upbringing as well, that life is profound and ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> there's humor there's humor everywhere <laughs> i agree i think it speaks to the absurdity of the truth of human situations and human interactions rory takes her dad's ashes but first she remarks at the fact that there are ashes in a can that we put that we burned a person when we put the ashes into a can and now it's just supposed to sit and live with us in our living room that is a bit when you distill it, which Rory seems to do a lot, when you distill it, it seems absurd. And in that way, it can be funny. I'm curious, Kristen, have you lost a close relative? I've lost uh, my, my grandmother when I was when I was just coming up as an actor. She had Alzheimer's. So Uh, At the time, I was doing some work at a dinner theater in Illinois, and there was a woman who I was working with who had lost her mother in the same way. And she described to me that what I was going through was kind of a double loss. The loss of my grandmother when she started to lose her mind and not be the same woman that we knew her to be. And then also, again, when when her spirit physically left her body. And... I remember not being able to go to the funeral at that time because I was under contract and I got these kind of a God winks, if you will. Just I I learned then that love will always be sent to you from this woman who I was with in the cast. And then also I went to just a local church service there and I was sat next to a woman who had lost her husband recently. And so we, we found this kismet connection and just the coincidence of sitting next to each other in that moment. And I think that's what, what Rory finds too, that along her journey, she finds these different things that are brought to her that make up her toolkit for processing her grief. 
Tati Hennessy's play centers around the theme of grief, and Rory travels all the way to the North Pole, a place that many of us associate with a different kind of grief, knowing what we do about melting polar ice caps. Do you think it's appropriate to draw a comparison between Rory's grief over her father and grief over the loss of our planet's Arctic natural resources? Or is that overthinking it? No, this this is a comparison that Tati herself draws in a beautifully written introduction to the play. One of the big themes in the play is Arctic exploration. And there's, a, there's all, all these stories and narratives uh, about polar explorers and their grisly ends as they were trying to reach the North Pole, trying to conquer it. I think Rory uses the term with their uh, bloody Victorianness. And Taddy creates the thought like this landscape that used to destroy us is something that we are now destroying. And a kind of recurring thought and question for Rory is what is our place in the cycles of life? this sense of time, like was this dad's time to go? And she arrives in Svalbard in the spring and she sees, you know, the ice melting and, and, and the kind of animal life and is so surprised that there's so much life in this place that's supposed to be such a wilderness and so barren. And haunting the whole thing is the feeling that there is a time in the future when this will no longer be here if we don't change our ways. And this collision between an inner journey of a person exploring grief and trying to heal their inner world and then looking out to these extraordinary visions of nature that are so poetic and so powerful but that around everything is this kind of moving wheel of time leading us towards an uncertain future it's a kind of powerful vessel for this story and allows it to sort of touch on many things like, um, what does the world feel like when we look inward and consider ourselves? And what does the world feel like when we look outwards and consider our place in relation to other people and other animals? And yes, there's just some beautiful language in the play that explores these melancholy thoughts, but that are profound in that they're asking questions about you know the meaning of it, not just the fact of it. And Taddy has written other plays that explore global warming or that explore science. You know, it's definitely something that, that, that she's interested in. Theatrical outfit artistic director Matt Torney and actor Kristen Jeter. We'll be back with more of our conversation about theatrical outfits play A Hundred Words for Snow after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Back to more of my conversation about Theatrical Outfit's new virtual production of A Hundred Words for Snow with actor Kristen Jeter and director Matt Torney. Here, Matt explains the affinity of this show with the goals of Theatrical Outfit. Well, I mean, my goal is actually pretty simple. Our mission at Theatrical Outfit is to produce theatre that starts the conversations that matter. And, and when you really look at what that means, it's like you need something that has an amazing story and you need something that is digging into something or has a question at its core or a curiosity on the part of the writer and the artists making it. And that kind of a recipe of amazing story that can make abstract things very human and very practical, very necessary in our lives. And then engaging with artists who are curious about the world, about the whys that connect it all together. I mean, I think that that's absolutely at the heart of what we do. But I would I would say that whenever I'm reading plays, I just look for stories that kind of move me for a start, you know, that feel necessary, but also that kind of engage the mind, the heart, the soul, engage in, in, in something else as well. And I think this is something that happens when you when you find really good plays. And then when you put them in the hands of amazing artists uh, like Kristen, <laughs> who's able to kind of take all of these things we've been talking about and distill them into a single story and a single body, an act of extraordinary imagination. Kristen, Rory is short for Aurora. I think it means dawn in its etymological origins. And I thought about the Aurora Borealis and looking to the stars. I have not read the script yet. Is there a connection between her name and a guiding star? There's definitely a connection that she doesn't make. And it's interesting to think that people's names have so much meaning and can carry them through their lives in that way, whether they know it or not. So she was definitely destined for this journey by being named Aurora. In previous stagings, the character of Rory has been performed by actors from a variety of backgrounds, black actors as well as white actors. In a show where one woman commands the stage for the entire duration of the play, there must be a good deal of flexibility for the actor to make it her own. Kristen, how did you bring your perspective and experience into the character of Rory? Right. Well, I've gotten to work with a couple of actors through my time at the Book of Mormon, who had also worked at the production in the West End, and they were both English and Jamaican. And so the truth that I knew about making Rory a Rory of color was to make at least one of her parents a Caribbean English person. So I started with that, even though that wasn't a dialect that I had ever worked with, but I, it felt the most true to me. So that was my sort of way into her family life. And I've been a viewer of a lot of British broadcasts. I really like the way that they make television and I've seen a lot of biracial characters. So I tried to make that Rory's home base. And then 
just a lot of research. I've watched a lot of nature documentaries about Norway and about exploration to try to see these kind of shamans that take people on these journeys, what they speak like. Yeah, so I just tried to make my voice go there as much as it could. And we're all suspending disbelief. So obviously I'm not, <laughs> I'm not 10 people, but <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully my voice could give you the give you the impression that I was these other places. Matt, before directing the film version of this play for the outfit, did you ever see this show performed live? No, I didn't. This was very much one that just, it's like one of those ideas that arrived fully formed. <laughs> I was sitting down, you know, trying to figure out the play to do. And I kind of imagined what the perfect play would look like. And it'd be like funny, sad, involves adventure, about something real resonant. And this was the first play I came across. And then pretty much every other play I, I read was like, is it as good as 100 Words for Snow? Or is it as right as 100 Words for Snow? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't something that I had seen before or that I knew what Taddy had intended it to be. It was just, it, it arrived both as a profound series of questions, an amazing character, but also I just had these images in my mind of how it could work as a film that felt like theater. I just saw vivid images, almost like frozen frames of how theater light or theater magic or the illusion, the way that we tell stories in the theater could be really powerful and evocative. Well, to that point, can you tell us something about the set design? Yes, our objective in capturing a film version of this play wasn't to make a film. It was to try and capture the experience of being in the theater. And the way we defined that is by really focusing on this idea that theater is an act of imagination that great actors can just take you on a journey through their imaginations and their the way they use their body, the way they use the voice, and the way that theatrical light can make things darker, brighter, the way color can work, the way sound can transform our, our, the kind of images that we see in our mind. So very early on, we said, despite the fact that the play goes to all these different locations, we are not going to use any images, no projection design. We're gonna conjure it all just through light on basically an empty stage. So the set design evolved quite fluidly from there, where we realized that we were, we were going to need a platform that could hold all of these different realities that would have to be painted with colors that you would see in sea ice and suburban London and Norway. And that we had to kind of come up with a couple of really specific and clever props um, that could stand in for many things and the rest. And I think this is the heart of the of the story and what makes it amazing. The rest is on the shoulders of an actor. And what was interesting about the process is that all the designers had to keep reinventing how they worked whenever the camera would come in or whenever we would encounter something that worked when it was in the theater, but we had to make it work in the frame of the camera. And that kind of sense of collaboration and creativity in the theater as we were filming it. Uh, it was really exciting. Some of the best creative days I've had since the pandemic began. Well, speaking of the pandemic, A Hundred Words for Snow was filmed live at the Balser Theatre with three weeks of rehearsal and two days of filming. And according to the playbill, countless safety measures. Oh, yes. <laughs> How did the team work around COVID restrictions? Well, we're very lucky 
at Theatrical Outfit to have an amazing production manager, Courtney Griever Freeze, who is just as thorough <laughs> and dedicated a person as you could want figuring out your COVID safety plan. And she worked very closely with her managing director, Gretchen Butler, to do a 24 page plan that covered every aspect of the production and incorporated uh, requirements from the actors union, the design union, and kind of the latest science and the latest guidance that we're getting from the CDC. 24 pages is a lot, but it covered everything from uh, testing. Like every single person who arrived in the theatre had been tested three times the week before and had to have a negative test. And while we're in the theatre, we were tested every couple of days. And then on top of that, of course, we we're all wearing masks unless the camera was rolling and then Kristen would take off her mask <laughs> as she was performing and put it back on. And everybody was distanced, uh, hand sanitizing stations. Uh, we were working with COVID safety specialists from the Emory School of Nursing. And air filtration, which uh, is the key to everything. Ah. For this, we have to thank Tom Key. When he and the team were designing the Balzer Theatre, they put in an amazing air filtration system. And, you know, we had, we had no incidents. And certainly as a director, it took a lot of getting used to. And Kristen, I imagine from your point of view, it was <laughs> a challenge as well. Well, not to mention those polar winds, Kristen. You must have been bundled up. Yes, I think everybody was really nice and accepting that the theatre had to be really cold because I was wearing a winter coat for most of the show. <laughs> This is for both of you. Why was it important for the playwright, Tatty Hennessy, to tell the story from a 15-year-old girl's perspective rather than an older woman going on this exploration? Well, I think she wrote in the published play that going through that change from adolescence to finding your womanhood is like going through a wilderness. Yeah, and I would I would echo that as well. It's this sense of discovery and exploration, which is the central metaphor of the play. That Rory is exploring grief as she is exploring herself. Really, the play is about overcoming loss and growing towards something. And, and I think that that's the most profound message that you're left with at the end of the play is one of hope. That however difficult or dark something is that you're going through, the only way forward is through. This quote comes to mind, who are you in the face of disappointment? And as Rory is someone who is 15 in a place where she kind of feels like she uh, hasn't found her identity or doesn't have the freedom to find her identity. And I think that when you're braced with a harrowing situation, that's where you find out who you are. So in this time where she was already supposed to be finding out who she is, she's going through this thing that seems insurmountable. It cements her journey like into young adulthood, even though she's 15. It's definitely like a rite that she goes through. Kristen Jeter, Matt Torney, this has been a wonderful conversation. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. This is so great. I listen to City Lights. So this is extra exciting to be on here today. It was wonderful to be here, Lois. Theatrical Outfit Artistic Director Matt Torney and actor Kristen Jeter. A Hundred Words for Snow is currently available to stream through May 2nd. For Earth Day, now we'll hear about the Freedom Forest. In February, the Freedom Park Conservancy 
Trees Atlanta and the National Center for Civil and Human Rights together joined to create a living memorial to the late congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis. To honor his legacy, hundreds of blooming trees, shrubs, and flowers have been planted in Freedom Park. I spoke with Dr. Kalinda Lee, head of programs at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and the co-executive director of Trees Atlanta, Greg Levine. He told us how the idea came about. It really started working in Freedom Park for many years with the neighbors in Ponce Highland in the old Fourth Ward. Um, we had done some flower beds at the corner of, of Ponce de Leon and Freedom Parkway right by the plaza, the John Lewis Plaza, and another group of flowering beds at North Avenue in Freedom Parkway. And for many years, we had been doing the plantings, but uh, during COVID, there were a few neighbors in Ponce Highland that were con- did extra maintenance on these flowering beds. And uh, when, when John Lewis passed, we thought we should really do more um, to kind of honor him and make it that much more of a, of a beautiful place. And uh, 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 the past board president in Ponce Highland, Beth McDonald, um, who's also on the Freedom Park Conservancy Board, and I just had some discussions around what could we do to further honor him. And, you know, we talked about bigger flowering beds with lots of perennials and grasses. And then being one of the co-directors at Trees Atlanta, I thought we could commit more and do maybe flowering trees, which could be even larger and more impactful. And at the same time, Freedom Park Conservancy was working on a master plan. So really wanting to do something big for John Lewis and so much work had been done previously when the uh, Andre Dickens was looking at some way to honor uh, John Lewis as well. He's a city council person for the city of Atlanta. And one of the ways was to focus on renaming uh, Freedom Parkway, John Lewis Freedom Parkway. Yeah, Kalinda, can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was really exciting to me when the partners from Trees Atlanta came to ask if the National Center for Civil and Human Rights would be interested in partnering in this project. Of course, we were excited about the opportunity to honor Congressman John Lewis for all of the work that he uh, put in as not only our congressperson, but as um, a civil rights icon, really. But furthermore, he has a very special relationship with this particular neighborhood, um, this area of town. He was uh, pivotal uh, as a supporter for the community in blocking what would have been a four lane highway that would have decimated much of the land that is going to be utilized for this project um, and many of the homes in the area. And he, for years, was deeply engaged with this community in particular um, as um, in really close relationship with his constituents. So all of that was really important to us to highlight and honor. And then we were also excited about the potential for this project to be, um, as you said, a living legacy. Uh, One of the things that we know is that the past and the present are always connected and being able to remember 
what happened before and how it is still relevant and inspirational for our continued activism is a huge part of what we're focused on at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And I, I can't think of any better way to be reminded of this and to be you know, in reflection and contemplation than by actually moving through this flowering forest um, in honor of the congressman. Do any of the varieties of trees and plants correspond to Congressman Lewis's life or philosophy in any way? You mentioned that the magnolia was his favorite. I was wondering if there is some added meaning in the names of certain plants. We haven't gotten there that that far yet. There's some trees that are symbolic of peace. Really, our, our focus was to do as much of the blooming trees around his birthday to really start that celebration and all, going all the way through to spring, really uh, extending the celebration of um, this great man's life. And I was going to just add to that, you know, one of the beautiful things always about working in partnership um, is how we can add our various areas of expertise together to create something, you know, particularly impactful for the community. So one of the things that the National Center for Civil and Human Rights has been doing in the partnership is creating a timeline of the congressman's life so that we can really point out uh, watershed moments and events and specific things about his personality and attributes, interest. Um, of course, we have no idea how that historical content corresponds to trees, but our friends in the uh, Conservancy and in Trees uh, Atlanta certainly do. So working together, we'll also, you know, be digging more deeply into that question, as Greg was saying, and hopefully to encounter you know, interpretive signage or maybe even some digital tools that will help you to understand how what you're encountering in this space is relevant to the, these lessons of history. So there, there will be something within the center that will explain the flowering tree forest? Actually, we are more focused in being a partner around what happens outdoors. So we recognize that our work is both inside the center and outside the center, right? Throughout our landscape, we do programs and projects sometimes in schools and other places um, in the public. And so we're hoping that the interpretation that happens around this can be sort of in situ so if you're if you're moving along the path of the flowering forest, you might be able to encounter something, whether that's on your phone um, through an app or something like that, or in physical signage. We're still you know working together to figure out what that means. Um, but we like very much the idea that this is happening in this public space because it's the ultimate kind of democratic space, right? And I mean, not, you know, party affiliation, of course, but the whole idea that this is a space that is accessible equally for everybody. I was going to say for all Atlantans, but even visitors, right? For anybody can can come into this space with no entrance fee and participate in whatever is being offered there. Greg, you envision the flowering forest tree tribute to John Lewis to take place annually, I understand. Any ideas how it will evolve in the next few years? 
We hope to do at a minimum of planting every year on his birthday, the Freedom Park Conservancy and the Parks Department's master plan for the, for the entire John Lewis Parkway. Uh, there are other components that will be added there. You know, they're looking at doing meadow plantings to continue to add to the flowering forest. There, there's possibility of putting lake, a lake in there. And as Kalinda said, a lot of, you know, signage explains, you know, John Lewis's life and his um, contribution. But we actually think in the fall, there'll be the start of a daffodil planting and possibly a meadow planting as well. And we'll continue to do um, care for the forest uh, throughout the spring and summer season, watering it. And what Kalinda had said earlier, really what's really beautiful about this project, it's you know, planting a tree, first, first of all, it's, it's a contiguous legacy. It's growing. Everything we do today will get bigger and more beautiful, just like I think the contribution John Lewis had done in the past, and it will continue to grow as well. Five years of installation is, is a long time, but the, the care for this forest and the visitation and hopefully uh, everyone's effort will continue. And uh, again, the collaboration and partnership and people working together is really what I think all of this is about. You know, everybody wants to, to be part in honoring um, this great man. And we all believe, I think everyone believes that, you know, working together is the way to, to accomplish the most you can. I think that's what all of our organizations are about, are really engaging the community to make a difference. Greg Levine, co-executive director of Trees Atlanta, with Dr. Kalinda Lee the head of programs and exhibitions at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the tree tribute to the late civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis, is in Freedom Park. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture, next Tuesday, April 27th. Please join us for City Lights Live at the Georgia Tech Skyline Stage. I'll host a concert with musicians from ATL Collective performing The Soul of Georgia, an evening of soul music. Tickets are at wabe.org. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now.
and thank you.